Uh, Eran Shear is the CEO founder of Nexar, which makes every, and by the way, let me, Nexar, am I pronouncing that correct? Yeah. Okay, good. Just making sure. So Eran Shear is the CEO founder of Nexar, which makes every car smart and is building the world's safe driving network. Having raised over a hundred million from top tier investors to make this a reality. Much prior to founding Nexar, Edan founded Dapper, a web service in the fields of semantic web and digital marketing, which after four years was acquired by Yahoo in 2010, at which point Edan became senior director and head of Yahoo's Creative Innovation Center, which was tasked with working on the technologies for the next generation of creatives across mobile, video, dynamic, and rich media ads. After Aran's time at Yahoo, he joined as entrepreneur in residence at Aleph, a Tel Aviv-based venture capital firm, where he focused on big data, cryptocurrencies, and market disruption. All right, so there's a, a lot to unpack and very little time. So let's do this. And An, thank you for your patience and for, for letting someone else tell your resume of the entire life. I love how somehow life can be cut into a few sentences. <laughs> yeah. So and An, where, where did you grow up and what was your first entrepreneurial experience? I know you spent some time in the army as well. Right. But please. Right. So I grew up in the northern part of Israel in a place that maybe, maybe many people have heard of called Nazareth or Upper Nazareth. Oh, Nazareth. Nazareth. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. So there is a, it was like a small city just next to the old Nazareth that we all know from, from Jesus Christ and all that. And so it was a sort of a periphery town. And I, I really, from very early age, was passionate about the physics and science. So like my life in a, in a, in a broad strokes can be summarized as like from age 10 to age 30, I wanted to be a physics professor. And then mm. I switched gears and became an entrepreneur. But my first entrepreneurial experience actually was done, was happening when I was in the army. Mm. I was, I was in the air force and Actually, I was in this program that where you do your your first degree before you go to the army. So I did a first degree in physics and stuff, and then I joined the Air Force, and and I ended up being part of of a founding team for a new unit. Right, like I was just a lowly, you know, junior soldier, but we were only like ten people in, in at the time, and we were the founders of the of Israel's uh, anti-ballistic missile uh, defense system uh, unit. Uh, it's, it's a system that operates something called the Arrow missile system, right? Like Arrow was the first anti-ballistic defense system deployed in the world. So it was quite exciting time. I'm talking about like close to 30 years now. This is like 97, wow. 98, right? So that was amusingly, that was my first kind of entrepreneurial experience. And uh, after that or during that, I, I did my master's in physics. I, um, I did, you know, like very theoretical stuff, like quantization of black holes, Hawking radiation, things like that. And, and then switched to complex systems. That was really the gateway, the, the gateway drug for me to move into entrepreneurship. That's, that's wild to be part of such a distinguished group of individuals at such a young age. I mean, just having yeah. a group of 10, 10 of you handling something this powerful that, that was the first of its kind during that time. That's, that's crazy. Did, yeah, did that you understand, did you understand at that moment how unique that situation was or not as you, you know, as you grow older, you reflect back and say, holy crap, that was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we had an inkling. I think the best, the, the best inkling was just that every week, some other hotshot, there was some serious time where we were working with a bunch of American officers that were kind of deploying some systems connecting to the broader radars that the U.S. has deployed mm -hmm. and things like that. So, you know, one of the amusing thing that one of the anecdotes 
that we, we had at the time. I remember that when we had those visits from American officers or, or, or functionaries from the Pentagon, they would say, you know, they'll speak to you in English, but don't assume they don't know Hebrew, right? So just... <laughs> 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 I love that. So I want to I wanna start your entrepreneurial journey with Cognibu Systems. I'd love for you, can you share what Cognibu Systems did and what your, if there was a lesson or a takeaway from that seven-year oh, experience, yeah. so I wasn't I wasn't in Cognibu for seven years. I I was there for something like three years. Okay. Uh, after founding the company, and that, by the way, one of the lessons. So uh, Cognibu, we started it probably in the worst time possible, like two thousand and one. Uh, you know, the just after the 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 crash. The 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 mm. bubble burst. Uh, yep. And we were and we were quite quite ambitious, which is a good thing, but also clueless. So uh, basically, <laughs> what, what? Yeah, yeah. Which can be a good thing, I guess. Ignorance can be helpful. So. Yes. Yes. <laughs> let's let's yeah. touch on that later because because <laughs> I I definitely agree with that premise. Mm. What. I wanted to do in Cognivu is build a new kind of search engine. That was the original concept. And the, basically, I was fascinated. And this is 2001, after, after the crash. Yes. So, so 98, I saw Google launching. I think I was one of the first users of, of, of Google. Back in in '98 or even a bit earlier than that, when I was in the academia in the in in the physics faculty, and I really was so excited about it, my my mind was exploding. I was thinking of even even quitting my master's just to go try to go there and and see if I could work there. I was really excited about it. And a couple of years after that, as I was kind of finishing my master's, thinking about what I want to do next. I got really fascinated by by a, a branch of machine learning called genetic algorithms, evolutionary programming, all this, that entire space. And I was like, instead of giving people, all people, the same algorithm for search, what if I could personalize the the algorithm that each person gets, right? Because, for example when both of us are searching for stuff related to quantum field theory, you probably, I don't know you that, that deep, no. but you, you probably- It's not my expertise. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. For stuff that are more, you know, for the amateur, right? Like, while I will look for stuff that are probably deeper because, you know, I, 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 I spend some that time- your field, right? Yeah. You spend so, time so, in your field. Exactly. So I was like, what if we could create a system that will that will evolve to the personality or to the needs of each of its each of its users, user, right? So that so that was the principle. We built some really cool technology, basically an evolutionary programming engine that will automatically create algorithms. And this is like two thousand one, two thousand two. I'm talking about. And, wow. and and I wanted to apply this to consumer land, right? I, I was always a B2C guy. I wanted to apply it to consumer land and and there was just like no takers, right? Like both my my co-founders as well as investors, they were like, we're not gonna do anything in B2C. This needs to be B2B. So we pivoted to uh, the area of basically organizing content for enterprises, right? So if you think of like a mainframe system, it generates a bunch of reports, a bunch of data. It's all ASCII, right? It's all a bunch of ASCII. And you and and the at the time there were the task of turning all of that ASCII into say Excel or Oracle or stuff like that required programming. Required mm -hmm. you to build a specialized program that is 
you know, that is a bunch of regex and heuristics and stuff like that to understand that particular type of content. So what we've, we've done is applied our engine to this wall. And basically you'd give us a bunch of examples and we would learn how to uh, turn to structure all of that content. So that, that was cool. It, definitely from a technology perspective, it was cool, but honestly, it wasn't exciting to me. And mm. so, so I was like, okay, no, knock yourself out. I'll go back to the academic world, right? That was the, the story then. But there are a bunch of lessons learned that I took with me from that experience. I think the first one, probably the most important, is you need to be extremely judicial when it comes to picking your co-founders. Mm. Right? Super judicial, and you need to be very stingy with the amount of co-founders. Like from my perspective, <laughs> no, no getting me, because we had, uh, you know, we had like five or six uh, co-founders. So the co-founders are key, they're important, but when you're saying stingy, you mean the, the amount of co-founders? Yes, like, oh, I think okay. the amount and the quality and the, and the vibe, okay? Mm. So, so like the optimal number of co-founders in my book is two. One is too little, okay? You can do three. Uh, in some rare cases, if you have a very open uh, personality, maybe you could do four. If everyone knows their role and it's super kind of tight, but I would I would go for for two or at most three, right? Mm. And, and and not more than that if I if I could help it. Definitely today. Uh, and I think what led you in your in, in, in the experience? I'm guessing you had. Or, or how many co-founders did you have uh, or at, at the company? In Cogniview, we had, I think, five or six. Oh, okay, got it. And, yeah. what, and, and having that many, what was it? The, the, the disconnect, the miscommunication on like the responsibilities or like wh yeah. where did it go haywire? I think, first of all, to, to take a group of five Jews and convince them to walk on the same direction, it's not trivial, right? So, so you need to you need to kind of take that into account. I think beyond that, I think one of the challenges that experience that happen in startups is, you know, initially you you like an embryo, right? Like a bunch of cells, everyone can do do everything, it's kind of multifunction, etc. And then just like an embryo grows, the cells start separating into functions, right? Like they, they become like bone cells and this cell and that. Mm -hmm. And similarly, founders need to sort of break and separate and own certain areas and they pull their weight, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges that happen is that you start uh, some hierarchy starting to be built in an organic way. Right, like so one of them is the CEO, one of them is the CTO or the VP engineering or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So there is some ownership, that, and then from a, a group where everyone were equal, it develops into a group where a, not everyone are equal, or at least mm -hmm. in a certain area not, right? So and that and 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 also if you have a by chance a situation where some of the people are not as strong or do not own their turf as much. These are, these are like situations where the chances for bad blood or the chances for problems grows exponentially, right? So I think that it's super important, first of all, to be judicial, to really know the people that you're going, you're marrying. Mm -hmm. In a way, I think of, of, of co-founding as not only a, a wedding, but actually a Catholic wedding, right? Mm. You can't really, you can't really divorce. It's super hard to divorce. Typically, it breaks the company apart. Mm. Like so, so super important to make that call because there's no going back. And and then you know, if it's two people, you can divide and conquer and stuff like that. But as you add more and more people, the chances of something going on is exponential. Now, there's another element, which is other people join the company, executives, first employees, things like that. And, and uh, they might take a bigger role or they might have more clout 
than one or two of the founders, right? Mm. That creates also a problem because those people are supposed to be founders, are supposed to be the leadership of the company, right, et cetera. But, but then there's some, you know, someone comes and people listen to him. So all of this kind of is super complex uh, kind of energy uh, to untangle okay. that I would recommend just being very, very smart about it. That makes a ton of sense. As you talk about those early employees and talent at a different phase in the company as well, a lot can happen and a lot changes. And depending on personalities as well, you might not have someone that has that authoritative personality, but they have that title, right? And so that can be confusing for, for a lot of the talent as well. Yeah, that makes that, that's, that's a great angle to this as well. So you, after Cognivue, you went back to academia, like you mentioned, you said, all right, I'm out, do what you want to do to work on some really fascinating projects. I got to see a number of the things that, that, that you discussed during this time. My question is, were any of these projects in academia when, at this point in time, when you left Cognivue and you went back to academia, were they influential for what became the next startup of Dapper? And what, what did you take away from that, from at that moment, that academia experience? I would say that what I did in my PhD, that by the way, I, I left, I didn't finish. It's important to, for history mm. to say. So what I did in my PhD actually influenced everything that I'm doing all the way to now, right? So I'll, I'll try to explain, right? So I was at the time super passionate about the, this branch of science that was just emerging. It was a startup of its own called Complex Systems, right? So it's, it, it deals with complex networks. It deals with emergent phenomena, right? Like what happens on the roads, what happens in cells in, inside the body. If you look at it as a bunch of uh, atoms, a bunch of units, a bunch of agents that interact in some, some complex way, right? So, you know, Stephen Wolfram wrote a whole book about that. There's Barabashi, there's a bunch of people that have wrote about it. And, and that was a, a, a field of science that I was super excited about. And in particular, I decided to try and, and go and, and do a, a, a large network analysis, a complex network analysis of the internet. That was my, uh, my- Complex network analysis of the internet. Of the entire internet. Of the entire internet. And we're talking yes. more or less what year from what you remember. About 2003, 2003. 2003, okay. And so uh, when I talk about internet, I'm not talking about website, I'm talking about routers. All of the routers on the internet, all of the ISPs, all of the infrastructure. How does it evolve? The highways. The highways. The highways, yes. So the first thing is how do you get the data, right? Like no one, there's no, no place that you can go and buy it. And the typical way it was done at the time was you get some funding from the NSF. You send a bunch of your friends in other universities, like 20 of your friends, a server that would do things like ping and trace route and some other things in order to map the internet. So I looked at that and I said, that's a bunch of crap. The way to do it is through crowdsourcing. You cannot really understand the internet from 20 vantage points because it's much, much bigger and it requires many more vantage points, right? It's like mapping all the, all the roads but we're just putting, putting cameras in 20, 20 highways, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. And you can start seeing the connection. And so yeah. I, said, I said, well, let's harness everyone. And, uh, and we built, I basically pitched it to the EU. The, the EU has this science fund. I pitched it to the EU. I found a, a thesis advisor. Uh, European Union? Or what, yes. when you say EU, okay. Mm-hmm. The European Union has like billions of dollars in, in, in science funding every year. So I, I raised money for, for this project. I built a lab, I hired people, 
I found a thesis advisor that was excited about it. And we built basically a software agent. I don't know if you remember the time of SETI at home. You, have you ever SETI heard of SETI at, home? SETI at home? Yeah, so SETI at home was a software that you install on your computer. And, and when it was dormant, when you didn't use it, it would download data from telescopes, from radio telescopes to look for uh, extraterrestrial uh, entities. Right? <laughs> okay, okay. So yeah. you, could, you could join in the fun of being part of science. It was basically crowdsourcing compute, right? Hmm. And I would say, okay, this is, this is a cool concept. Let's crowdsource location, right? So we'll, we'll put that agent on the internet. Thousands of people from all over the world will install it. And then we'll be able to map the entire internet in no time. And basically that's what happened. We built that agent. We, we put it on, and there was a website at the time what was it? Zero, the nerds would go, well, we'll just put it, we, we'll just put it there. And thousands of people uh-huh. started in, installing it. But the real insight that I got from that experience is we put on our website a leaderboard of who's making the most basically measurements for the project. Right? Uh, so you're so in, that incentivizing like, now all the people yeah. that are participating. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I didn't know that it would open up a whole kind of wall. I just thought it would be a cute kind of, you know, like a PHP script with a leaderboard by country, by team, and stuff like that. Yeah. People gone crazy, right? Like, I, I, we, we blocked the amount of, of measurements you can do because beyond a certain amount, it looks like you have a virus on your computer, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so we, we can and then people started installing our software on all of their computers in their university, in their campus, right? All kinds of stuff like that. So that was my yeah. first kind of experience with crowdsourcing. So two things from that story, which is really cool. One is it's already becoming really apparent your fascination with networks and, uh, and the interconnectivity and and that plays a big role in in a number of future things that you do, including what you're currently doing now. So that's yeah. really cool. And then the other, what you mentioned about gamification, had you ever, did you at any point in time, out of just pure curiosity, had you incorporated those type of gamification type of incentives on things, on, on other projects you have? Yeah. And, and it, it always goes, they always work. Yeah, yeah, that it's it's a super effective thing, right? So, for example, a Dapper, uh, you know, what Dapper was is it was out my take on on building the semantic web, right? It was like the web two and and my idea was well, if you can take any website and turn it into an API, you can build a lot of new applications. Right, like what's called mashups at the time, widgets. I don't know if you remember this thing. So, so mm-hmm. I'm like, the the challenge is that those websites didn't have APIs at the time, right? Like Facebook didn't have API, uh, uh, Google didn't have API. No one had any APIs. So what Dapper was was the sort of the world's ultimate scraper in a sense, right? So. You would, <laughs> You would go to the website or you go to Dapper's website and it will look like you put in, say, Facebook, right? And, and it will load up something that looks like Facebook that you just click with your, with your mouse and say, okay, I want that field. I want that field, right? And you give it names. You give it semantics. You say, okay, this is a profile picture. This is a post. This is the title of a post, whatnot. And this is how you log in, right? So you would basically teach our machine learning engine how to interact with that website, right? And then we will expose to you a REST API and a bunch of other things like it that you can access, you can query and get information from that website coming through us, right? So you have a Lego block. In fact, I have here next to me, you don't see it, I have a wall made of 50,000 pieces of Lego that we commissioned mm-hmm. for the Web2O conference of 2007. All right, so that oh, was oh, wow. 
Yeah, yeah, that was lots of fun. So, so you had then at some point we got to like 200,000 APIs running through our system, right? Like with all of those different websites and people were building all of this stuff and plugging it into Google widgets and Yelp pipes and building applications with it. And it was kind of really fun, but didn't make any money, right? So we were like, we noticed something interesting because we would go to say Expedia and tell them, hey, look at all the use cases that people are doing with your content, with your website, right? Like this widget mm -hmm. for searching slides and this coming weather plus, plus hotels and all this kind of cool stuff. And they were like, well, how much are we getting paid for that? Right? They were like, this is our content, we want to get paid. Right. And, and then we went to the same people and said, you know what? We can take content from your website and put it in, in ads so that instead of these really cheap or stupid banner ads that you have, you have dynamic yeah. contextual ads. And they would ask us, well, how much do I need to pay for that? Right? So and, the and same by thing. banner, just so by banner, it's a static message, yes. regardless of who comes. Exactly. And the dynamic is it's a personalized message based on your recent searching history to, to be able to, so obviously yeah. one is way more, way, um, more. way more impactful than the other. And it's funny that now that's super common. So you tell me back then that that was not a thing. No, it wasn't the thing. We basically invented the concept of dynamic retargeting, dynamic advertising, you know, those, those, those ads that change uh, based on who you are. And, you know, it's kind of like a theme. It's a, a, a that also kind of vibes with my original concept for, for Cogniview. So it kind of, it came natural for, for us, but it was really amusing that you go with the same, basically technology to the same people at one time they're asking how much money are we getting? And in the other time they're asking how much do we need to pay? Right? And basically it's the same thing. So we're like, okay, cool. So we'll monetize through a, by, by turning advertising into valuable thing. And we ran this whole movement called advertising sucks, right? Like fixing advertising. We had a website, we have uh, meetings, gatherings in different cities every month. It was really, really a lot of fun. And that was the wall, the time of the early days of uh, real-time bidding, if you ever heard the concept, these exchanges, the Google exchange, the Yahoo exchange. And we were like one of the first three companies on, on Google's real-time bidding exchange. And we, and it was the wild west at the time because you had all of the information, right? I would put a cookie and I would know basically every website you go to, right? So we could do things that were super Tailored, right? Like, for example, to a, a site like Zillow, right? Like looking for a house. And we will give you a, an ad with a calculating the mortgage that you need for that particular house you're looking at, right? Or we'll, we'll know that you're going, you got, went to Priceline and searched for flights to New York. And then we'll find you. We'll find you in some stupid blog, and we'll show you an ad for Expedia with the flights that you need. Right. Mm -hmm. So it worked really well. It, it it went through. We went through the crazy time of the recession of two thousand and eight, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I, that was a super painful moment for us, like everyone, because. But it was kind of for me in particular as an entrepreneur because. I was about to close around in September of 2008. I moved to the U.S. in August of 2008, right? And then- What round was this? Was this- This uh, was the B round. B round, okay. Yeah. And I was like, uh, you know, I was supposed to get a term sheet on September 15th, but instead of a term sheet, I got a, I got a phone call because all the markets were crashing and, you know, everyone stopped, stopped investing. So thankfully my investors at the time were a great fund called Excel. 
soap operas. Yeah, of course. I and they yeah. and yeah, so they they continue to to back us through that front and through that those challenges. Obviously, I had to cut some people, but then uh, things took a turn for the better and. And uh, eventually, as you mentioned, uh, we sold the company to Yao, which was a, a really good outcome for us. And uh, when I saw this, so there, for many founders uh, out there, the whole building something, hopefully taken in public, right? Yeah. Uh, building something, and then at some point getting acquired. That whole dance of acquisition, it's a very unknown space. For many reasons, you know, a lot of founders, they go through experience. Some have a good experience, some have bad experience, but I, I would love to learn with this acquisition, which I know was, I don't know, 50 million or something like that. Yeah. 55, uh, 55 million. So when Yahoo decided to acquire you, so they were at this point in time, how did that evolve? They were customers. And, yeah. and they said, and they kept seeing the evolution of your product. And then they kept wanting to learn more about it. And it, it, one of the, my initial reactions is where, where in that dance do you reveal? Is there like, do you, do you reveal too much? Is there too little to reveal? Like, how do you know what, you know, how to do that dance? Cause I feel like for many things that, that potential customer could these are massive companies that also have yeah. departments that can be very similar that can, you know, replicate or mimic what, whatever it is that you're trying to do. Like, so how, what was that something in, in that, that resonated with your journey as well? Like were those, were those obstacles there as well? Yeah. All right. So there are a bunch of things there to unpack. First, Yao was a partner of ours and basically a reseller. Right, they had the media, oh, we had the technology, and uh, and uh, many of their teams uh, would uh, sell a product to their advertisers as a premium product, and they saw mm. the impact. Right, so they had first first seat kind of first row seat for for seeing the impact of what we built. Then. The the they try to also do it themselves. And they realize that it's difficult, you know, that it's non-trivial. So it's, it's not like they, they were like uh, clueless and they were like, okay, you know, we just buy them or stuff. No, they tried to do it themselves. And I have a funny story about what happened after they acquired it and the team that tried it became my subordinate. Uh, kind of <laughs> amusing, amusing thing. And, and then I think what. And what really, what really sealed the, the deal there was that they saw that we are growing regardless of their of involvement, their of them yeah. trying to. Uh... Yes. Yes. With, you know, with Google and with Omniture right. and all of these uh, different, different companies. So, you know, the, the first meeting that we had about M&A, I wasn't aware that it's about M&A. And it was kind of amusing also because we had a mix up in the hours. So I was there, but I was kind of late to the meeting and the, you know, the, the SVP of, of, of advertising at Yao was really started the meeting really pissed. <laughs> I was like, yeah, was <laughs> yeah, but we had some champions inside and, uh, and we were like, uh, we keep, kept on engaging and initially I was running it as a totally separate thing, right? Like no one other than my co-founder knew about it. Obviously the board knew about it, but no one at the company knew about it. We, we kept on going. I, I actually went out at the time and searched for a CEO to replace me as a CEO, because mm -hmm. I thought I wasn't, I, I wasn't what the company needed at the time to scale sales. So I actually hired a, a company to, and I found a CEO and he was just about to start walking as, as these conversations went. So eventually he, he only had the pleasure of being a CEO of Nexar for like, over Dapper for like, I think six months or eight months or something like that, because we all no way. in a company. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Wait, he's and, a great guy. We're still friends. When, when you, when you thought about 
bringing in a CEO because the way that this is already assuming that Yahoo, you know, th they would acquire no. you and this, oh no, it wasn't assuming it was, no. this was, you're looking the other route, which is like, yes. what do we do next in terms of scaling? And we've hit a certain roadblock where I'm at the point where we need to bring in somebody that can take it to the, to yeah. the next level. Okay. Got it. So you were, you were making these moves without knowing at the moment that Yahoo was already looking at you through a different, through an acquisition lens rather, rather than like, I guess, a, a, a potential competitor. Yeah. But I say an important thing in that game is always to play all the way to the end as if it's not happening. Right. You cannot lose a step, right? Because a, it's possible that it won't happen, right? These companies, these, these large companies, you never know what could happen, right? They could fire the CEO and the new CEO doesn't like you, or they can change strategy and Yao change strategy like every other week, right? So, so, so you always need to execute and grow the numbers and create that competitive threat also on those, on those large companies to keep the, to, to even have a chance in, in closing the run. I think one of the mistakes that people do when they, are, when they get into M&A conversations, they flatter about it, they want to cater to the big company, and they're, they're basically are, you know, cutting corners on their core business. And that ends up either downgrading the, the outcome or even removing it entirely. So... I really recommend continuing executing and keeping the conversation as tight as possible, as small team as possible. If you can do it only with one of your board members, do it only with one of your board members. If you have to have the entire board, do it just with the board. You know, if you have to have your CFO, then just the CFO, but like keep it as, as tight as you can and keep it out of your mind. I don't think that it's happening. Don't change your habits. Don't go and buy cars and, and do stupid things like that, right? Just keep on executing. I love that. I love that because the negotiation, the reason you're at that table negotiating is because what you've accomplished so far. So the, the more you continue accomplishing, the more they're going to they're gonna want and, and, the, yeah. and the better leverage you'll have eventually possibly for something to happen. So just keep focused. I love that. That makes, that makes a ton of sense. So when you, when, when you did go through the acquisition at Yahoo and now you transition from your founder to now working at this massive company, any experience from, from that journey that was useful for you with Nexar? You know, because you you oh, did spend yeah. some time with Yahoo. So what what was the what was that transition where you said because of this, then I was able to leverage that and and as I created Nexon. Yeah, so I learned a lot about uh, managing people at scale, uh, about running processes properly, things like that, about broadening your ambition. I think I think these are these are important lessons that you can learn from spending time in a in a big machine. Even though you know Yao was dysfunctional in in some parts of of my my tenure there, but nonetheless, you can take on if you if you keep you on the lookout, you can you can take on these lessons. You can look at some mentors that are there and look at how they operate, etc. I I. I think it's it's it was something that I I definitely benefited from, but I think you also do a lot as a founder coming into a large company. You can do a lot by remembering that you're a founder coming into a large company, right? Mm -hmm. So so what I mean by that is there are certain things that are just status quo inside this firm inertia in the in, inside those companies and and you can challenge those status quo especially if you don't care about being fired right so so i think you know from my perspective 
I totally didn't care about being fired because because you know that would mean just acceleration of my my of a portion of my proceeds and I can go and do another startup. Life is good. So I I didn't I didn't really care about that, and I just voiced my opinion, you know, and and did what mm. I thought was right. And what turned out to be is that people built respect to you because of that. Now I didn't. I had no intention, other than being Israeli, and that's my my kind of nature. I had no no intention of building clout with the executive branch. I I really really didn't see it as a career that I'm building or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. There was no ladder. I was just like Mm -hmm. spending time building shit that I thought were important and, and, you know, Saying my what I think that you know a great example I was in some C staff of you know with my my boss at the time and a bunch of VPs etc. and they were talking about HR turnover right which was at the time mm-hmm. I think it was like twenty percent twenty five percent and I heard that and I was like I was shocked like that's that, crazy high that's crazy high right like in all of my time four years at yeah, a dapper, two people left. My, <laughs> that was, so they were like, what, well, what do you think it should be? And I was like, 0%. Why would we try, why would we invest in hiring people for them to go up? And it looked at me like, oh, you know, nothing. You're like, a, but then that what happened in my team because I drove them towards a mission that they got excited about, right? So, so I think that it's worth it's worth kind of just just to be staying true, being honest. If you don't want to build a corporate career, right? Like, and right. I would recommend it as an entrepreneur. If you if you're an entrepreneur, you build through that. You have a gift that is very that is unique, right? Like there are, mm-hmm. at the at the grand scheme of things, when you look at the planet, at the billions of people on the planet. Only a handful of them actually built yeah. a company and see saw it through and and came, get got to an exit. This is an experience yep. that is worth its weight in gold, right? So then, yep. uh, you know, ve- resting, investing as 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 they call it in inside some corporate thing is is something that is not utilizing your skill. So I came out after after the three years that I was you. But I came right. out with a few assets. The biggest asset that I took from Yahoo is my co-founder at Nexa, is Bruno. Oh, he was, came from Yahoo. Yes, he was my boss at Yahoo, actually. <laughs> so you left Yahoo with your boss, and now yeah. you're and now your partner for Nexa. So tell me, what is I want to be? I know we have a little bit of time, so I want to cover a couple of things here with Nexa. With Nexa. What what led you to come up with Nexar? Like how yeah. what how did that transition? And what was the pro- What led you to the problem that you wanted to focus solving for Nexar? Yeah. So back in 2012, when I was in Yahoo, 2013, uh, I participated in something called Singularity University. It's in NASA in Moscow. Oh, I love Singularity University. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. They do some incredible. So I did work. their 10 week program. By the way, it's just across from Yao. It was very convenient. And um, that, that opened my mind on what's coming next in the next 20 years. And the key thing that, that was, you know, a year later when I left Yao, a key, a key belief that I had that Bruno shared was that. Everything that we did in the cloud, in machine learning and AI and all this kind of stuff, we'll be able to do at the edge, at the device level, eventually, right? So if if you can do intelligence at the edge, then you ask yourself, which uh, improvements to the human condition can you create for that, right? Like you can do things around health around sports and, and exercise. You can do things around, around the real estate, maybe, and management of city. And what, what, what we kept on coming back to is 
the, the importance of intelligence at the edge is that you can do things in real time. And now you ask yourself, which use cases happen in real time, in our life, in our daily life, right? So we're not talking rockets anymore, right? We're talking just mm -hmm. regular people, right? And I'm like, okay, one, if, I'm, if I say the wrong thing to my wife and I have to really think, think fast about, you know, that's, that's one area. <laughs> but buying that, I'm not gonna build a technology around that. Driving is actually the most real-time experience that we, uh, we, you, we do, we experience every day. And it's the yeah, one where real-time decision-making really comes into play. So, so we kept on going back to driving and we looked at it and there was this conundrum. There was this, this paradox that we started to unfold, which is they keep on telling us that more and more technology is coming to the vehicles and they become safer and safer. And then you look at the statistics and more and more people die every year, right? So what gives, hmm. right? Like if you look at the statistics of how many people are dead or how many, how many collisions happen every year in the US, you'll see this rising uh, graph uh, barring Corona time, right? And you're like, what the hell? Right, there's supposed to be. A, I drove in the in the first Google car before it was called Waymo in 2013, when I was at Singularity University. Like, oh, it's just around the corner, autonomous vehicles, right? And uh, you have mobile and we were like, it's not going to work. It's not going to impact. And the reason why it's not impacting is because every car is 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 like Mad Max. Every car is to its own, right? <clears throat> what you need is for all of the cars to open their eyes, to understand what's going on in real time and share that information with all the other. If you manage to do crowdsourcing, remember crowdsourcing on there? You manage yeah, to do I was just gonna say crowdsourcing. Yeah, I'm a one trick pony. I know nothing. I just have one idea <laughs> and I keep on just applying it. I love place. it. If it keeps working, why, 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 why stop? Yeah, exactly. So we decided to go on a mission to build a massive network of eyes on the road to crowdsource what's happening, collect the you know massive amounts of data from the real world, and start start building this application. So we we thought initially of hey maybe we can work with the car OEMs, but this is like 2015. The car OEMs will know will MIAs on this whole matter. So we're like okay, no no dibs, no problem. We'll build our own. So we we got into and, you know, Dashka manufacturing into Harbor. And I really don't recommend getting into Harbor. It's really like all of the white hair in on my head is just from Harbor. Don't do it. But we... we <laughs> Wait, you say Harbor? Harvard? Harbor. Yeah, like... Yeah. No, 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 not Harvard, the, the university. Harbor, like, building real stuff. Not just software, but hardware. Oh, hardware. Got you. Hardware. Yes. Uh -huh. okay. So we yeah, actually yeah. went and built cameras. We went to Shenzhen, we, we found some partners, we, we started building real devices, started to learn how to sell those devices, how to sell them online, build a direct-to-consumer brand, start you know, scaling it, a bunch of hustle, lots of pain. But you know, long story short, today we have a network of half a million vehicles all of them at our command, right? Like all of those vehicles with our cameras connected to wow. our brain. So you were able to make it happen because hardware, to your point, it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother ball game in terms oh, of challenges, yes. of obstacles before it even gets out the gate to then have challenges in, in terms of sales, exactly. in terms of all the other things. And you were able to accomplish that. How, what, yeah, was, was but, there but a moment it's a lot of pain. I really don't. Would you have done it any other way? I know now it's 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 working. But would it, do you believe? Obviously, hindsight is you know this is all in hindsight. But would you believe that that was there any other way it, no. before even manufacturing yourself? No. You you couldn't no. I, leverage you, any. First of all. With hardware, it's never working. It's about not failing, right? Like the 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 the, the conversation I had before we, we started talking with my, with yeah. my 
SVP of sales that was, was mad because we ran out of inventory in New York for, for, right. for, for cameras, right? So it, it's right. a constant pain, first of all. Let me put it there. But <laughs> Let me clarify. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But today, Nexa is collecting more visual data from the US than anyone else. Maybe Tesla, maybe not. I'm not, I, I'm not entirely sure. But mm. other than Tesla, there's no one else wow. that collect. We, we're, we have updating, we're collecting something like 300 million frames every month. We see 200 million miles. We, we, we have 400 million map updates from the US every month, right? Oh, how did you, so this is, first of all, this is, uh, those numbers are insane. That's incredible that you got to where you are right now. How did you, what did you do right that you believe others did wrong? What you weren't the only, were you the only player that thought about like, this should be a network. And then from the network data, you can resell that data to governmental yeah. agencies or insurance companies, or was there, were there other players and like, what, you know, what do you think worked for you guys or what you would have done better maybe as well? Oh, there's a bunch of things I would have found better. But, but you remember the thing that you said early on about ignorance is bliss? Yes. So I think that's like 50% of any success we have is that we didn't understand how difficult it would be, right? <laughs> more more uh, experienced people just didn't... Would never try. Because they know try. that it would be unsurmountable odds. Yes. And then the other thing is a bit, uh, we call it like the siren call of, of local maxima. Okay? And it's a bit of a loaded sentence. So uh, we could build Nexa just as a dash cam and services company. There are amazing companies that built amazing businesses on that, right? Like there are companies like Litex and Samsara and, and DriveCam and all these companies that cater to the needs of fleets and, and different, and they make good money, right? They, they, they make good money and they don't bother with all the data because that data is a hassle, right? Like localizing a traffic sign from a camera that is installed in some random angle or whatever, is actually hard. It's a lot of technology that you need to build. And so, so and, and it's not obvious that you have business. So you have to be obsessed. You know, Bruno and I were just obsessed with this uh, question of, can we see the entire planet every second, right? That was our ambition. And, and it's, a, it's like moonshotting, right? Like it's a really crazy thing that you don't really need in order to build a good business. You can build a good business just mm -hmm. on that. So, in, in a way, the thing that we did that people, other people didn't do is kept on going towards our North Star and not stopping on the way for a perfectly fine business, right? <laughs> and, and it's-, it's But just cool. focusing for you, data. Data, data, yes. data. Yes. So just yes. How much more can we collect? Now, how do you do the data play? Because I know, you know, I've, I've sold previously to enterprises and you have to hand everything in a, on a plate, on a silver platter, oh a gold yeah. platter with, you know, yeah. uh, the, and paint the entire picture for them of the 10 different avenues, how they can make money and, and it's going to be quick and it's going to be all this stuff, right? How do you do that? One with governmental agencies, which is really, I mean, that's, you know, Fortune 500 is one thing. Now you're dealing with a lot of political stuff, right? Like on the yeah. other end with, with government agencies. How, what was like the first product that you said, this is how we're going to package the data and, 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 and no one's telling you how you're going to use it either. Like, I, I don't know, like, was yeah. there a roadmap? You guys just had to like think creatively and say like, how do you package this so that people understand that they're going to have to pay us for this, you know? So you, I believe that you as a, as an entrepreneur, you you know, when I was young, I was part of a, an organization called Pugwash, which is like a peace organization and whatnot. And they had an, a climate and, and they had that 
that sentence say, think global, act local. And I think entrepreneurship is, is very much like that. It's like, you need to have the North Star of your 10-year vision in mind, but you need to be super pragmatic about what you're doing next month or in the next quarter. And so we were like, yeah, we want to see the entire US and stuff, but let's start with one city, right? And let's convince that city that we can deliver some value to them that they couldn't get from someone else. You know what it was? It was monitoring of construction in Las Vegas. That was the monitoring first of construction in Las Vegas. Yeah. And and what what was so crucial for them to know about okay. the construction? So construction zones in cities, you know, all those all right. cones, all this kind of stuff. They're they're a super uh, difficult issue. They're a huge issue from traffic management perspective from a risk and collision there, there are magnets for collision. And all of that funnels to like four people at the end of the day that sit in some lowly office and they're like two people mm-hmm. driving around. And the, in, in a city like Las Vegas that is growing, they have like, they need to manage like a, a thousand different construction zones in a month, right? They have no ability to do that. They're, they're just chasing their tails. And we're like, okay, we have, you know, a few thousand vehicles in the city of Las Vegas. We can actually monitor on a daily basis, every eight hours, all of this, the construction. And, and you just sit in your office. You don't even have to go out. You have all of that in a nice dashboard and you can start handling this, right? Like if someone is supposed to clean up, clean up the, the walk zone at at 6 a.m. and it's still there in 7 a.m., you can find them $5,000 per 15 minutes or something like that, right? So there's like good saving, good reason for that. And that was how we started. And the reason why we started with that is because that's what the customers ask, right? Like we, we really started very pragmatic. Now we have a map of all of the U.S., uh, all the signs in the U.S., all the construction in the U.S. We have like Google Street View, but with images from today rather than from a year ago, right? And we have an and API. Are, and, and I'm guessing, I was just going to say, I'm guessing you have certain analytics now that are catered specifically for that, for 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 the type of numbers that they need to know when it comes to construction and yeah. yeah. Yeah, too many wow. applications. And, Not only that. And when you said when you said that the way you found this out was because you asked the customer. Yeah. I I love this. I love this because it sounds it it, it is that simple. And I've, I've I've had conversations with founders. Now the question is, these conversations with customers were these discovery calls. I mean, did you reach out to them and you're like, hey, we have all yeah. this data. It, does anything come to mind to you of what matters to you about what could possibly, and you just let them tell you what the product is? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what, what we did. Look, one of my friends from the Valley is a guy named Eric Reese that uh, was pushing, when I was in the Valley, he was pushing the whole concept of Lean Startup. Like the, one of the first thing I've done at Yahoo was actually uh, buying a hundred copies of, of the Lean Startup book and and wow. circulating it to all of the execs, right? <laughs> it was kind of amazing. So, yeah. so yeah. I, I, I was a big believer in that, right? In, in this notion of a customer development, it's called, you know, customer discovery, four yeah. steps to the epiphany, all this kind of stuff. And we just applied that playbook. And... And we, you learn a lot. Like for example, LA uh, acquired uh, or sub- subscribed to our construction monitoring data as well. But they, you know, they had access to our virtual camera service, basically the, this live Google Street View service. And they were like, oh, we can actually use that to monitor where there are homeless uh, uh, people so we can go and help uh-huh. them, right? We can monitor uh, how restaurants use the curb. So people are starting to come up with use cases that I would never think of. Right. So once they already have it in their hands and they're getting it, they're getting one solution for a certain problem, it helps them ignite other 
oh, we can do this. Oh, we can yes. do that. Yeah. That's, I, I know that the time is, I, yeah. I, I want to be really respectful of your time. I, I have one, I have one last question. What are the implications of this connectivity? Where do you see, you talked about having this 10 year, you know, you, yeah. you got to have a vision. Where, where would be yours, you know, for, for Nexar? Well, I, I think that the most immediate thing in the next kind of two years, three years, is we have amassed so much data that, that we can use, you know, real advancements in AI that are now happening, that are not coming, like a love language models to unlock the physical world for any question you'd like to ask, right? Like, imagine kind of saying, okay, I want to know, how's the, how's the line outside Katz Deli right now, right? Or, yeah, or where, where's the, which roads are st still have snow after the storm last night? You know, like, is there, is there parking nearby that on the street that I can go and catch, right? Incredible. So, so, so literally converting the, the imagery, the language of imagery, connecting it to what is the language of, of, of text, in essence, combining those worlds together, since you have the nervous system of everything and yeah. allowing someone to just do that simple search and getting results yeah. in yeah. instant. That's then, insane. Yeah, and then if you look further into the future, already today, our, uh, the data that we collect is used by some of the largest AV companies in the world to train their engines, to train their brains, right? Wow. So, so you could imagine how you could uh, start having, you know, all of this, all of this uh, advancements and, and build in, in AI today uh, to build a new framework, a new, say, playbook in how you think about safety, right? Like today, your car doesn't slow down because there's a reflection of lights coming around the bend, but you do, right? Like, because you understand mm. that that reflection means that the car is going to follow, right? Mm. But... Actually, in a few years, the car will be able to do that. And it will, and, and you'll be able to provide cars with clairvoyancy, with seeing the future, with seeing what's happening 100 yards, 200 yards, 500 yards ahead of them, so that you'll be able to prevent all collisions. Because at the end of the day, I'll just leave you with this thing, you know, any collision that ever happened between cars could have been prevented if 30 seconds before it, I would go and, and kind of tell the driver, hey, you're about to get into a collision in 30 seconds, right? Because that's what you need. You're gonna, it's going to, you know, change course. It's going to slow, slow down, down, get aware. You know, yeah. that's all you need. You need 30 seconds. Today, cars only have two seconds, right? That's the amount of time that you have because Two seconds ahead of them, there's a truck, and they don't see beyond it, right? But if all of these cars will start sharing information, then the radius around it becomes larger and larger. You get to 10, 20, 30 seconds, you eliminate the collision. And that's where we're, what we're aiming for. And it's not going to be based just on our cameras. It will be based on an open network of networks, right? Like it will be based on you know, GM and Ford and Volvo and other camera manufacturers and, mm. and, and, and other AV all coming together on a standard-based approach. And we just want to build a digital fabric that will allow that. Incredible. Edan, is there anything that our group can help in any way, any last, any particular message for, for all the founders that are venture back, that are in their journeys, anything else that we can be of help, Any anything that comes to mind, because you've given us so much time, so many amazing lessons. I just want you to know personally that if there's any way that I can be of help through the network, through time, please, like I, I'm, I'm, I'll be more than happy to 
And and again, just thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank sure. you for sharing this story. Pleasure. What and I, I, I would say one thing. I'm always on the lookout for great use cases. So if you, anyone, any one of you, imagine like a great use case that would come from marrying, you know, a large language model, GPT-like AI applications with the physical world, with real-time sensing and, and seeing all of the US. What would you do with it? These are things that I'm always on the lookout for. So, you know, feel free to reach out. I love that.